What's a white lie? I mean, when you think of a white lie, it's sort of like a lie that's not really a bad lie. I mean, that's what people say. Well, it's a lie, but it's not a bad lie. It's sort of like a half-truth. And maybe, and the truth is, there's no such thing as a half-truth. It's either true or false. And we say, like, a white lie is like somebody says this, and you don't want to hurt their feelings or something, so you just tell them. Uh, We realize that whenever we lie, it destroys our reputation and our testimony. So we have to be real careful, especially when people find out. And you don't think, well, I'm going to lie, but nobody will ever find out. You know, people find out. Uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, how often do you tell those white lies? How about when, uh, say you have a boss or someone who is in authority over you, and they tell you, I want you to call this person. And you say, okay, I'll call them. And then you never do it. And then they come to you and say, did you ever get that person? And you go, well, I tried to get them, but I, there was no answer. That's not true. You didn't try to get them. You didn't get them. But, you know, you didn't want to say to your boss, I didn't do what you told me to do, so I'm going to say that I tried to get them, but there was no answer. Or how about on a resume, as you get ready, some of you get ready to come out of college and you put together a resume, or some people who are thinking about a different job or something, do you put everything on there that's, that's true? I can still remember that it's not been that long ago that several coaches, uh, college coaches and pro coaches, were, lost their jobs when they found out that what was on their resumes weren't exactly right. And... That can happen to a lot of people. This evening, Abraham tells a white lie. Some would say a half-truth. He does it, and there's failure, and there's a loss of testimony. I think it's amazing. If you remember what I read at the very end of the passage, it says Pharaoh had him escorted out. That doesn't sound very good, does it? You know, and, and so, you know, and this is the man that we all go, the man. We go back to Abram. Everybody goes back to Abram. You know, he's the man. How did this happen? He failed to trust God in his circumstances. And I think there are two aspects here. There's the circumstances response, and we cannot control our circumstances, but we can control how we respond. S. Lewis Johnson, used to be a professor at Dallas Seminary, says, there are circumstances over which we have no control. And it's true to say that I don't have control, but we must never mean to say that we don't control how we respond, because we do. This evening, Abraham's failure in the circumstances of a famine, and we'll see what happens there. Let me review for just a second. They left the earth of the Chaldees. And they've come to the land of Canaan. And that the covenant was there, the land, the seed, and the blessings. Notice again, verse 4. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. And Lot went with him. Now Abraham, Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. If we can put that, the map that we saw. And I have this thing. It doesn't work on TV. See, look. Whoops. Okay, but it does work on this. And and they were living over in the Ur of the Chaldees, and God told them to leave and to go to a land that he would show them, the land of Canaan. That's the land of Canaan there. That's Israel. That's modern-day Israel. They were supposed to leave. Now, people, some people say, well, why didn't they just go this way? Because they went all the way up here and all the way down. Well, that's a desert. You, you don't really go that way. So what they did is they left. They followed along the river, and they went to Haran. And then Abraham's father died there, and they left, and they went down to this part of the world, to what we call the land of Canaan. So it says, so Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. Lot was with him. That's his nephew. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, he lived to be 175. So the the rest of this part where we see the life of Abraham, we're going to see 100 years of his life. And it's pretty incredible. He took Sarai with him. The next verse will tell more about that. He took Lot. He took all his possessions. And we know from the book of Hebrews that it said, By faith, Abram left his home not even knowing where he was going. Now, that's pretty incredible. A lot of times when we leave to go, we, we know where we're going. We got even maps. We got, you know, we say, yeah, I'm supposed to turn here and I'll get there. He just left, leaving 
going up through the river, get here, and then heading down to this place. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know exactly what the he didn't know what the land would look like. He didn't know if he'd be good land. He didn't know. But he trusted God, and that's the key, because he obeyed God. And that's the first thing that we saw about Abram, is he obeyed God. He took God at his word. He trusted God, and that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to obey God and trust him. Notice verse 5 says, Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and all the persons which they had acquired in Iran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and thus they came to the land of Canaan. Now, if you notice that verse, uh, it says that he left with Sarai. Now, remember the name Sarai means nagger. His name is Abram, which means big daddy or high father. Her name is Sarai, which means nagger. That's what it means. So big daddy's married to nagger. Maybe she's the nagger because she's wanting children. He's 75, and by the way, she's 65. She's 10 years younger than he is. At this stage of their life, before they ever come down there to get down there, he's 75, she's 65. And she want, obviously she wants children because that's a sign of blessing. And to be 65 and not have children, in that day and time, they would say, wonder what's wrong there. What, what have you done wrong? Why don't you have children? And so maybe that's why her name was Nagger, because she wants children. And she said, I want children. I want children. I want children. I want children. So Abraham took, Abram took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his nephew. Remember that Lot, that Abraham, Abram had a brother, and his brother died, and his brother had a son named Lot, and so he took, he started taking care of his brother, his brother's son, just as if it was his own son. So he took Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions that they had accumulated. Now, we're gonna find that Abram is fairly wealthy. He's got a lot. And then notice it says, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. Persons they acquired? What do you think that means? They had what? Maybe they had slaves. Maybe they just hired people. Maybe they had slaves. Who knows? In that day and time, did a lot of people have slaves? Yeah. Did we say that's right? Not necessarily. But people had them. Scripture talks about it. And so he had he had a lot of people. Did you know that, that later on we're going to see when Lot gets himself in trouble and he has to go fight and, and deliver his nephew Lot, he takes 318 of his men to go fight their soldiers. He got 318 men who are soldiers. We're not talking slaves or anything. We're talking about men that are in his camp, men that are in his household. 318? That's a little bit later on, but this, I mean, he's got a lot already. They set out from the land of Canaan, they set out for the land of Canaan, and they came to the land of Canaan. Now, this is going to be the land that God is going to give him. He's going to promise to Abraham, it's the promised land. In fact, you remember when they were in Egypt years later, when the nation of Israel came out of Egypt, the book of Exodus, they're going back to the promised land. If you may have never thought about it, when they say, we're going to go to the promised land, it's promised to them by God. That's why it's called the promised land. It's going to be a great nation. He's going to have a seed. There's going to be the Messiah. There'll be blessing through all the world. There'll be salvation to the Messiah. So there's a lot of great things here. What happens when he gets to the land? Verse 6, Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the Oak of Morai. Now the Canaanite was in the land. We have another map. And since the, it's hard, you can't see it on this. This map is not as good as I wish it was. But they come down and they get to about right in there. Okay? There's a place called Shechem, which is in between basically Nazareth and Jerusalem. So if you can, I don't know if you're able to even see on this television because it's pretty small, but Nazareth is, is, is up toward where Tiberias, that little part, northern part of Israel. Jerusalem is down there. Well, Shechem is about almost where the word says West Bank. That's, that's almost where he stopped at a place called Shechem. And it says now the Canaanite was in the land. What he's explaining to us is the descendants of Canaan, all those 
Jebusites and Hittites and Gezerites and there's about 10 or 12 names of different people groups that are living in the land which we call the Canaanites. They're in that land. Now, they think it's their land. It's not their land. It's Abram's land. And God's going to give it to him. God's going to give him every bit of it. In fact, if you could you go back to the other map for just one second? We talked about this last week. Uh, well, I don't, you can't see it very well there. Uh, there was another map, and we don't we don't have it, but uh, yeah, we do. Well, sort of. Did you know that the land of Israel is going to start right here? Because when God made the promise to him in chapter 13, 14, and 15 of Genesis, He said, "Your land will stretch from the river in Egypt all the way to, and if you'll show the other map, to the Tigris Euphrates." The land of Israel is going to stretch from Egypt to modern-day Iran, Iraq. That's going to be the land of Israel, which they will possess and that they will rule and have possession of when Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So it's huge. They don't have all that now. In fact, he gets there, and he's a stranger. He's a pilgrim. He's going through, and people don't even know who he is. And in fact, he's going to, when, when, when somebody dies, he's going to have to buy some land from somebody to be able to bury his family. But God says, that's all your land. And not only is it your land, it's going to be your descendants, and it's going to be your descendants forever. That's the promise. So they come to Shechem. It's in the middle of the land, really. It's between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. It's in that part. And he comes to a place called the Oak of Morah. It was a grove. It was a place. You know, that's where they would go. They would go to these places. That modern day is called Nebulus today. That's the name of the city, the best that we can tell from history. The Canaanites were their descendants of Ham and Canaan, who would one day, who would one day, they would all become slaves. These people groups, most of them are going to be killed. Some of them become slaves. Now watch what happens. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, verse 7, to your descendants I will give this land. What he's done is he's reaffirming, reaffirming the covenant. Remember he told him way back up there, he said, I'm going to give you a land, a seed, a blessing. I want you to go to a land that I'll show you. I'll give you that land. All of these things, there'll be a seed, there'll be a blessing, there'll be all of these things. When he gets to the land... The Lord appeared to Abram. Now, have you imagined that? Let me ask you something. We read this all the time, right? It'll say something like, and the Lord said to Abram, right? How did he say it to Abram? The Lord appeared to Abram. What did he look like when he appeared to him? How did he appear to him? It doesn't say, does it? It doesn't say anything. It said the Lord appeared to Abram. Do you think Abram's sitting by a fire and he looks up and there's... Something that looks maybe like a person? We don't know. You know there was a couple of times that God appeared uh, and he had, God appeared with some angels speaking to Abram. And it looked like three people. Just three people coming up. And, and of course, Abram knew something was weird because uh, it, you could see for a long way. And Abram, said, he looked up and suddenly there were three people there. And he knew it. He ran and told Sarai, let's fix some food. Something special is happening here. So what did God look like when he appeared to him? I don't know. You notice that in verse 7 it says the Lord appeared to Abram. And I've been teaching, of course, in my Sunday school class about cults. And when you look back at the Old Testament, how things fit together. Whenever you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's how your Bible should have it translated in verse 7. That's from the Hebrew word YHWH, which is the personal name of God. So the personal God appears to Abram. And it doesn't tell us what he looked like. It doesn't tell us how he did it. We know that, that uh, for Moses, Moses out in the wilderness, and God appeared to him, but he appeared to him in a what? In a burning bush. This doesn't say there was anything burning or a bush or anything. It says he appeared to him. And he said, to your descendants, I will give this land. 
There's the land, the seed, and the blessing. That's the whole thing. He's reaffirming this, reaffirming this covenant that he's made. So what is the response? I mean, by, by the way, I want you to understand this. The land, the seed, the blessing. At this point, he's never had any children. He's 75 years old. Sarah, Sarah is 65 years old. And they have any, don't have any children. And technically, he will not have a child through Sarai until he's 100 years old. He's got another 25 years. And waiting for the, waiting for the child, 25 years is a long time waiting for the child. So what was his response? He said, I'm going to give you this land, the seed, the bliss. All of this is for you. Look at his response. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. He built an altar to the Lord. This is, a, this is really an act of worship. On this altar, Abraham is going to worship God as he offers sacrifices. And so when you, when you think of an altar, I think it really thinks of two things. It's a place of worship and a place of sacrifice. That's what it is. A place of worship, a place of sacrifice. Let, let's think for a minute about, about sacrifice. Okay, let's put the next one up. Uh, when you think of sacrifice, there's really two things to think about. God's sacrifice to us, our sacrifice to God. You ever thought about it that way? Because see, a sacrifice is giving up something. And in that day and time, what Abraham did, if he's going to build an altar, what would he do on that altar? What would he do? Sacrifice what? A turnip? No. Some beans? No, it was an animal. And probably one of his good animals. Probably one of his what? Best animals. And he would take that animal, he'd kill it. And that's a sacrifice. And he, so he, he, he built an altar to the Lord. And so when you think about sacrifice, I think there's two aspects of it. First of all, God's sacrifice to us. You know that God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his son. That's an act as a sacrifice. He gave Jesus Christ to be the sacrifice and the substitute for us. Hebrews 10.4 says the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin, but Jesus Christ is the final sacrifice for sin forever. God has a sacrifice for us. We owe God death. We're supposed to be separated. We don't have a prayer in that sense. We say, I don't have anything. But God says, I love you so much, I'm going to sacrifice my son in your place. And B, he's going to be the final sacrifice for sin forever. He's going to be the satisfactory payment, not for your sins only, but for the sins of the entire world, is what he says to us. God's sacrifice to us. But we also think about our sacrifice to God. And we can do that. And we, we can do that as, I think we have a slide. Is there, is there another slide that, that says about Romans? Yeah, we can sacrifice to God. Romans 12, he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your what? Your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. He says, now let me tell you, here's the, here's the logical thing to do, he says. To you who know Jesus Christ as Savior, and this is true for every one of us in this room who have trusted in Jesus, I am assuming that every one of us in this room have put our faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and we have eternal life. The logical point, he says, I beseech you, I beg you, brethren, by the mercies of God, based on what God has done for you, to present your bodies, your lives, this body, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. He says, this is what's logical. This is what you should do. He then goes on to say, and stop being conformed to this world, shaped, pushed by this world, but you be transformed from the inside out by the renewing of your mind, which is the Word of God. And he says, so you'll know what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. So we have God's sacrifice for us, which is His Son, Jesus Christ. We have, God's, we have our sacrifice to God. Now, that's only for believers. Unbeliever doesn't sacrifice his life to God because God doesn't need that. 
He says, as an unbeliever, I want you to take the gift that I've given you. I want you to take the sacrifice I have for you, which is Jesus. Now, as one who belongs to me, I want you to sacrifice your life. Um, it's what we should do. We don't all do that. In fact, many don't do that. In fact, I think there's many people who believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, but never offer their lives to Him in service. They just don't. They're all afraid if they do that, they'll have to serve God. <laughs> or they'll, he'll make them go do something they don't want to do. The truth is, it's the greatest life of all when you give your life to Christ and say, wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, I don't want to be conformed to this world. I want to be tra- transformed and changed. I want to live for you. And so when you see this whole idea of the altar, there is the picture of sacrifice, God's sacrifice for us and our sacrifice to God as we offer our lives. But there's a second aspect, and there's worship. And what exactly is worship. Well, truthfully, worship is responding to God. That's what it is. A lot of people actually think the worship is the music part. It's kind of funny because that's what our that's what our culture has developed into. People will talk about teaching and worship and they'll say the worship was great and the teaching was okay or the teaching was good or the the, the you know we really came and we came together for worship. Uh, and then and then after we got through with the music, we did the because a lot of people think music is worship. Worship is responding to God, and you respond to God in so many different ways. Don't confuse worship with emotion and feelings. There are feelings and emotions connected with worship, but worship is not emotions. It's response. There are at least four areas that we, we can worship. We, as we pray, as we sing, as we give, as we study and apply the Word, those are aspects of worship. When we come together on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night or a Wednesday night or any time we come together, we come together to worship God, and we can worship Him as we sing. That's what we did tonight. These great songs. Boy, there were a couple of songs in there. I just loved them. I, just, I was just you know, hoping that I'm worshiping my God and Savior by singing these songs to Him. And there's the aspect of praying as we lift up our voices, even in a, a, a corporate prayer or individual prayer we give we talked about on Sunday morning I got to do the uh, offering prayer this morning and I talked about this was that time this was an act of worship you have a privilege of taking what God has given to you and giving a portion of that back to him as an act of worship you get to do that and then the whole idea of studying the Bible and applying it taking the truths and principles and living them out in our lives that's that's responding to God that's worship So we respond to God by we worship as we pray, as we sing, as we give, as we obey, as we study, all of those kind of things. So my my goal and prayer for all of us is that we think about the aspect of worship, sacrifice, all of that together. Just as Abraham or Abram built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him daily. We need to think about the Lord and say, Lord, I want my life to count for you. I worship you. I want to give to you. I want to... All of these different things. So Abram built the altar, the place of sacrifice and worship. And this is a pattern for his life. And we'll see it. Verse 8. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Now, uh, if, you, if you want to throw that map back up again, the other one, the, the, uh, the other one, smaller one. There we go. If you remember, they've come down to here, and they were somewhere up in here. Now they moved down only about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. That's where Bethel and Ai. Bethel means house of God. And we're not really sure what Ai means. It's easy to spell and easy to pronounce. Ai, right? And how do you spell it? 
AI. So it's not that hard. Anyway, so they moved down to this place right above Jerusalem, and, and there's a place called the House of God. I'm sure he named it that. Bethel. Bayat means house. El is the name for God. It's the singular form. So Bayat El. Bath El. Bethel is, means the house of God. Jerusalem, Jaru, is, 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 uh, is sort of the shortened form of, of a YHWH. And Shalom means peace. So Jerusalem is God's peace or, or the, the Savior's peace. You, you've got Bethlehem, Bayat, Lahem. Lahem means bread. Bayat means the house. Bethlehem means the house of bread. So all of these places, these, these names, they all tie together for something. So they moved down to this little area right here. And he's going to keep moving south, by the way. He's going to probably get down to Hebron in just a, just a little bit. We'll see it in a minute. But he moves down uh, from the east. So he proceeded there to the mountain on the east, which is Bethel, and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, and he built an altar. It's the second time. He just keeps doing this. It's an act of worship, and he called upon the name of the Lord. I did a study... Uh, I had, had actually had uh, Joshua Milligan take the time for me one, one summer when he worked here as an intern. He's at Dallas Seminary. He's about through. He's got about another semester or two to go. But he took and he went through every place in the Bible that it said, call upon the name of the Lord or call on the Lord. Almost every one of the references of the Old Testament. There's only three in the New Testament. Everything is the Old Testament. And a lot of people, you know, it'll say, whoever call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's in Romans chapter 10. And many people use that to talk about eternal life salvation. Every place in the scripture that the call upon the name of the Lord is found, every place, means either an act of worship or deliverance from an enemy. Every time. It never means to call upon him for eternal life salvation. Never. It's always an act of worship or a deliverance. And so to call upon the name of the Lord is not to trust in him for eternal life. It is to either worship him or to call upon him for some kind of deliverance, some kind of safety, some kind of way. In the nation of Israel, they called upon the name of the Lord all the time to be delivered from their enemies. Anyway, so he calls upon the name of the Lord. It's an act of worship. Now notice verse 9. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Now the Negev is a Hebrew word that means the south. And that's what it is. He's going to go south. Maybe he came down to Hebron, which is kind of a famous place. Or he may have kept coming on further down. And, of course, modern Israel, you know, this is the Gaza Strip and this is the West Bank and all of these things. But he's heading on further south. And it gives us no reason why he's heading, why he's moving around. Uh, in those days, people were nomads more, and, and he may be moving to find more place for his, for his sheep and his cattle and his animals to eat. And, and who, who knows why he's moving around. But notice verse 10, something happens. That there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now realize that God promised he would bless Abram, but now there's a famine in the land. And Abram could say, I thought you were going to bless me. There's a famine in the land. The land's the blessing, by the way. The question, does the famine mean that he's out of the will of God? Does any time something negative happen in your life that you're out of the will of God? No, the book of James says, count it all joy and you fall into various trials because the testing of your faith causes you to trust God. It's an opportunity to trust God. problem is he goes down to Egypt. God promised that the blessing would be where? At the land. We see nothing in here that it ever says that he said to God, God, should I go down to Egypt? We never see that God says, go down to Egypt. I've told you to go to Egypt. It never says that. We never see anywhere where he consults God. 
There are places where Abram will consult God. There's places where others have said, Lord, should I do this? But there's nothing here. F.B. Meyer, who was a great Bible teacher of years ago, he said he acted on his own judgment. He looked at the difficulties, and without any consultation with his heavenly father, he goes down to Egypt. Some say he failed because he didn't stay in the land. I don't know. I don't know if he failed. Where he failed was not necessarily by leaving the land and going to Egypt. Where he failed is when he lies. We'll see that in just a minute. Well, look what happens. There, yeah, can you show the big map? If I can find it. They're going to leave here, and they're going to go probably this way along this region, get in here. Now, they're going to end up where Pharaoh is, and we don't know whether they were all the way down here, whether they were up here. We don't know what cities they were, the Pharaoh were living in at that time. Uh, they n- did not go down this way or probably way down here because it's just terrible. So they probably went near, probably got over by the, by the, by the Nile, and we're going to know that they were wherever the Pharaoh was, whether it was in... Uh, uh, you know, one of the towns up by the northern part or maybe down one of the southern part. But look what happened when they got there. It came about that when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarah, his wife, See now, I know that you're a beautiful woman. How old is she? She's at least 65. She may be older than 65 because it didn't tell us how long they've been in the land. Abram was 75 when they left. It doesn't tell us how long it take, took them to get there, but it could have taken them months to get there. It's a long trip. And... So she may be 66, 67, 68 by the time. We don't know how long they stayed in the land before this event happened. But he says, you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is this man's wife. And they will kill me, but they will let you live. Now, I don't know where he got the idea that because he had a beautiful wife and he goes to Egypt, they will kill him. We don't know where he got that. Whether he thought, well, these are pagan people. You know, I've got the real God. The real God has already come to me and blessed me, and I'm going down to where these pagans are. And so the very best thing to do is, you know, they'll just probably kill me because she's so beautiful. So I've got to come up with an answer. We don't know what he's thinking. But in verse 12 it says, And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so it may be well with me because of you, and that I may live on your account. Now, he says, when we get there, just tell everybody you're my sister. Well, you know, the truth is, guess what? She is his sister. She's his half-sister. Go. I think the next slide says it, doesn't it? The truth was, she was his half-sister, Genesis chapter 12, verse 20. That still didn't make it right. Because what he's saying is, she's not my wife, she's my sister. She is his wife. And so it's sort of one of those white lies. I can say, you are my sister because you are my sister. But you're not really my sister, sister, you're my wife. He's just not telling the truth. And so he says, it will go well with me and I may live on account of you. Well, it's supposed to go well with him in the land and his seed and his blessing. Some have said that he's not thinking and he's definitely not trusting God. He's trying to solve the problem his own way. He said, I've got to come up with a plan to save my life. Instead of trusting God, he says, here, we're just going to lie. We're going to tell him, you're my sister. That way, they'll say, well, let's be nice to this man. Because, see, who, who had authority over his sister? The, guy, the, the brother did if there was no daddy, see. So they're going to say that this woman actually belongs to him, not his wife, but his sister. So... They will treat me really nice because they want her. And they'll treat me nice. That's what he's saying. They want her? What happens if they get her? 
Well, isn't there a promise about a seed coming from Abraham and Sarah? What if she gets with someone else now? Sexual relations with her and what about what about all that? How's that going to affect anything? I mean, you would go, hey, Abraham, have you been thinking about it, any of this stuff? Because he hadn't. Well, what happened? Verse 14. It came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw the woman was very beautiful. Just what he thought. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. What does that mean? Does that mean he said, boys, I'd like to come, won't y'all come visit? That's not what it meant. Pharaoh's officials came back to him and said, hey, there's a guy just came into town and his sister's really, you'd like her. You'd like her a lot. And so he said, I'm Pharaoh. And that means I'm, I'm God. I am God. See, in, in the Egyptians, Pharaoh was God. And his son was God. That's why the judgment on Pharaoh, is the death of the firstborn, was the death, was the judgment on Egypt's gods. And one of the gods was the Pharaoh himself. And so he says, since I'm God, I can have just about anybody I want. And so I'd like this woman, so bring her into my house. Wow. But notice, verse 16, this sort of adds to this. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. What's happening to him? He's getting rich. He's lied and he's getting rich. I've had people say that I don't really know if this is wrong or not because I'm still being blessed. Bill Lawrence, who came to our church, that when we moved into the building, if you remember, in, in uh, 2002, and he came and spoke that Sunday morning for us. He was my professor at Dallas Seminary, and one of my, he's a great man, a great man. He was on the board of a church in which uh, one of the pastors, who was a teaching pastor, was committing adultery. And they found out, and he'd been doing this for a while, and so Bill had to go meet with him, and so he went to talk with him and said... Uh, this is wrong, and you're doing this, and this is wrong. And the guy said, well, first of all, I deserve this because of my faithfulness to God. And number two, it can't be wrong because the church is growing, and the Word of God's going out, and people are being blessed by it. And Bill Lawrence said, people are being blessed by the Word of God because the Word of God is what's alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. It's not because of you. You are sinful. And they had to remove him. Sometimes when there's blessing and we do, we do wrong and it turns out, looks like it's turning out okay for us, that doesn't mean what we did wrong was right. If you said to Abram, how you doing right now? He said, I'm doing pretty good. It wasn't that bad of an idea to lie. Oh, really? Watch what happens. You can imagine that Pharaoh thought, what what am I going to do with this woman? But, verse 17, the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house, meaning his household, with plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. We don't know what the plagues were. We don't know what happened. But something happened. You can try to guess some things that might have happened. Who knows? And all of a sudden, they started saying, something's not right here. What is going on? Alan Ross, who's professor at Dallas Seminary, who was Hebrew professor when I was there, he said the divine preservation of the purity of Sarah was for the sake of this promise. He's going to take care of Sarah because that promise has to come through her and Abram. 
He's not going to let her be mixed in with Pharaoh. So he, there, God brings a plague on Pharaoh and his house because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So look what happened. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Because he found out. Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Look what you've done to me. You know what Pharaoh's saying? I wouldn't have taken her. if I'm an honorable man. I wouldn't have taken her if she was your wife. See, Abram thought, hey, there are a bunch of pagans there. They'll just do anything. No. He says, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why didn't you say, why did you say she's my sister? You lied to me. I took her for my wife. I was going to be with her. Now then, here's your wife. You take her and you go. This is not positive for the man of God. This is not positive for the man who's been chosen by God and his people group who are going to be the light of the world, who are going to be God's chosen people. The Messiah is going to come through. There's going to be great blessing. Is this a real positive beginning? It's not a positive beginning at all. It's a negative beginning. There's embarrassment here. You told me a lie. You worship... uh, What God do you worship anyway? Because you just lied to me. How many times has somebody said to Christians... You say you're a Christian, you live like that. I don't believe anything about what you say, and I don't believe anything about what you believe, because of the way you live. That happens, doesn't it? That's why we have to live righteously and godly. We have to be lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, which we do shine as the lights in this world. Well, look at the end of this thing. Pharaoh commanded his men. You know, Pharaoh was upset. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife. And all that belonged to him. You know what they said? You're going to leave Egypt. You can't stay here. You can't stay here. If you notice chapter 13. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. He went to the south part of the land of Canaan. He left Egypt. They ran him out. Ran him out of town. We'd go, that's pretty embarrassing. Yeah, it is. What a terrible start. Well, he failed. He failed to trust God. Sometimes our actions reflect on what we believe and sometimes they don't. Sometimes the way we live bring people to Christ. Sometimes the way we live push them away. Martin Luther said it was so humbling for the man of God to be rebuked by a heathen king. It has been said the best of men are at best men. In the circumstances of life, how do we respond? Do we come up with our own plan to figure out how we're going to take care of ourselves? Or do we trust God? Well, one thing we see, what does God do? What does Abram do? We see that God is a God of second chances. We gets back and we're going to see what God does. In fact, God's not a God of just second chances. He's a God of third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances, many chances. How many times have we failed? How many times have we failed? We can't even count them, right? How many times does God take us when we confess our sins? He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. Take us back and we'll use us for His glory. How many times? Every time. Just like God told Peter when he said, you know, I'm doing pretty good because when, when you know, somebody does me wrong, I, I, I'll forgive them all the way up to seven times. That's, that's, three, that's twice what the Pharisees would do. And Jesus said, not seven, 70 times seven, every time. Sometimes we need to start over, don't we? We blow it, we confess it, and he takes us back. And says, I will use you. I will, as long as I got you here, I'm going to use you. 
what have we seen? We've seen Abraham had a pattern, and pattern was to worship God. He built the altar that was sacrifice and worship. Famine came, and the best we can tell, he failed because he came up with his own plan. He left the land. He lied, and then he was moved from Egypt, and he lost his testimony. Pretty powerful. What What are some applications? Well, the first one, let, let's worship God. That's that's the key. That's what we see this evening as we sang those great songs. It was an act of worship as we pray, as we sing. In fact, you can put them up there as we pray. We're praying and singing and giving and study the word and application. Those are ways that we worship God, especially when we corporately come together. I mean, you can go through day by yourself praying to God and singing and talking to Him and studying the Word and making application. But even corporately we come together and we can worship God as as a group of believers and so we respond to God, and I think that's a great thing. It's not feelings. There may be feelings with it, but it is our response to God, which is worship. Tied in with worship is sacrifice, and we remember God's sacrifice for us, and that it is Son, Jesus Christ. My prayer and my, my hope for all of us who know Christ is that we will say to God, God, I give you my life. You'll never be the same. We've talked about this before, so I'm not going to go into details because we're already out of time. But the truth is, the greatest thing you can do as a believer is say to God, I want my life to count for you. Second application, very quickly, is trust God in the circumstances of life. It's so easy to take things in our own hands, to try to figure things out ourselves, realize that in the trials and problems, really, we're supposed to trust God. Ironside says it doesn't please uh, it, do, it doesn't mean God is displeased with us when trials come in our lives. We should count it joy. We can't control our circumstances. But we control how we respond. Our trials are great opportunities. When we, when we trust in ourselves, what happens? There's sin and there's loss of testimony. Because what happens is we, we do our own thing and there's failure. Abraham feared men rather than God. He trusted in Sarai to protect him rather than God. And it was shame and loss of his testimony. Let's trust God in the, in the trials and the problems and the ups and downs of life. And the last thing is, do we need to start over? I mean, sometimes we need to start over. God is the God of many chances. I think one thing to think about is, the first one is, maybe, maybe there are people who, when I say start over, that you've gone your life and you've thought that you get to God by being good, by trying to trust yourself, by, by doing the good things. Maybe today is a day you start over and you realize that the only way you can come to God is by faith in Jesus Christ, that He's the one who died and rose again, that He gives us eternal life. There's a second thing, and it may be for us as believers, that we fail, that we sinned. It may be time that we confess our sins and we start over. Because God will take us and use us. That's one great thing about it is that sometimes in our relationship with people and they fail us, they, they don't measure up to our expectations and, and they fail and we, we don't have anything to do with them anymore after that. We say, well, you let me down. That's the way it is. But isn't it great that God never does that? That we fail the living God, we turn away, we do exactly the opposite of what He tells us to do and then we confess our sins and He doesn't say, hey, don't come back to me. No, I'm not listening to you anymore. No, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us every time. May we be men and women who worship God, who serve Him as we trust Him in the circumstances of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks for uh, tonight and the, the opportunity to study. And Lord, as we think through this, we see that, uh, uh, that uh, we can worship You, that individually, corporately, as we come together, as we sing, we pray, we give, we study, we apply. All of these things are acts of worship as we respond to You, to who You are and what You've done. Lord, thank You that... Uh, you have given us the greatest sacrifice of all, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that we will give you our lives in service for you. Lord, may we trust you in the events of life. There are going to be all kinds of things. And it's going to be so easy to try to figure out our own thing rather than trusting you and living according to the word. May we do that. And, Lord, when we fail, we know that we can start over any time, that we confess our sins. You're faithful and just to forgive us. 
and to cleanse us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.